Thousands are asking, how did your surgery go? <laughs> Funny you should ask. It didn't. Uh, <laughs> crazy things happen. Just before I was here a month ago, I passed a kidney stone. Uh, when I was here a month ago, I was having some severe issues that turned out to be a UTI. The UTI canceled the surgery. While we were messing with that, we found out that I have a basal uh, cell carcinoma on my back. So 2023 is not starting out too well for me, but, uh, but we're, we're, we're going to get through it uh, by God's grace, either here or in the air, and uh, grateful to, to, for the opportunity. I, and I do appreciate your prayers. I, I, really, I really do. And, uh, and uh, not, all, all of this so far has just been uh, uh, irritants, nothing serious. And we're, we're hopeful that, that, that uh, we'll be able to continue on. As we've said the last several months that we've been here, that we, we year, years ago when I first, the Lord began to deal in my life, and, and, and uh, uh, the, the book of Second Timothy was, was very vital in my life. And uh, God used that to me as a young Christian, and now as an old man, and, and um, uh, a lot more behind me than in front of me. Uh, I want to go back to 2 Timothy and teach things that I've learned from, from this. And today we're going to come to a passage in 2 Timothy that, that um, uh, very frankly, um, I almost skipped, okay? Uh, I, I started to skip it because, because first of all, we dealt with the various people, the various personalities of Second Timothy when we first started this series, and and, and this is personalities, and and uh, secondly, it, it it doesn't. It's not a message that not a passage that lends itself to doctrine and so on and so forth, and 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 so I, I was tempted, but the more I looked at it, the more I realized that here are some things that we need very desperately. <coughs> In the day in which we live, uh, I'm, I'm going to suggest to you, and I hope that by the time uh, we finish, that you'll, you'll see why it's, this passage has become very, very important to me. You're going to wonder, what was the scripture readings about, okay? Fulfill, you know, the, the Noahic covenant, the command to replenish the earth, uh, the Great Commission. How do those fit together? Well, I hope that by the time we finish today, uh, you'll see that they fit together very importantly, and we'll be, there'll be a challenge here that'll be uh, something that we need. You are all aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant to him and find to find mercy from the Lord on that day, as you well know all the services he rendered at Ephesus. Father, as we come to you this morning, we pray that you will take the word of God and speak to our hearts and lives. And Lord, as we see the importance of our being uh, lights, uh, witnesses for you, uh, testimonies for you here in, in, a, in the world in which we live, 
as we see how you use this wicked, ungodly world to deal in our lives and to make us into your image. Lord, I pray that that we will be challenged to service for you. Father, calm our hearts, guide us now as we begin to study your word. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Amen. Why would Paul mention these people? So begin to think about these things. Paul, now, you remember he's talking to Timothy. This is his last will and testament. This is Paul's challenge to Timothy to to go forward and and, and uh, he's going to be taking, taking up the mantle. He's going to be grabbing the baton pretty quick. Paul's about to die. Timothy is going to be taken over. And he's getting, trying to do everything he can to get Timothy ready for what's, it, what's coming. And, and Timothy, or Paul is a whole lot more aware of what's coming than Timothy is because Paul's older. Uh, some of us who are older realize <laughs> we, we, we look at children and we think, oh, boy, uh, some, sometimes we, we I, I think most of us as Christians uh, sometimes shake our heads in, 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 in repentance uh, over what we're leaving our children with. But I, last, last a month ago, I preached from, from uh, verses 13 and 14, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And we, we looked into the book of Ephesians at various things that Paul had taught to Timothy. And, and we, taught, we showed the, the doctrinal issues, the, the theory, if you will, of, of, of the gospel. But I'm going to suggest to you that oftentimes we need to look into the narrative portions of the word of God to understand how those theories work out in practice. Sometimes we need to see how things, they, they, how they work in the real world, not just how they work in the test tube. Amen? And, 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 and I believe this is what we are going to see here this morning, is where the theory of doctrine meets the reality of people. In the world in which we live, there's not a one of us who does not look at the world, and I don't care if you're a believer or not a believer, there's none of us that look at the world and say, oh, boy, things are going so well. I'm just excited about how things are going. Okay? We may have tremendous disagreement over what's causing the problems and what the solutions ought to be. And we do have a lot of disagreement about that. But none of us disagree on the fact that our world's a mess. And, and we're in a horrible situation and I'm going to suggest to you <clears throat> that every once in a while, living on an island somewhere in the Pacific where nobody comes around begins to look very appealing. I actually did some research on that a few years ago. <laughs> and I found out that there are many habitable, uninhabited islands that if you are brave enough to go there, they're large enough to support a family, be a great place to go. And I laid in bed at night thinking, how can we make this work? And I'm not the first person to do it. If you go back and study history, you'll find that the hermits 
tried to do that. In the Dark Ages, people built monasteries to escape from the world, to, to try to live in a pristine environment where there weren't any problems. And people have been trying to do that for a long time. There's a whole genre of literature, movies and so on and so forth, about people on deserted islands, Robinson Crusoe, the Swiss family Robinson. More recently, Tom Hanks did Castaway. And of course, the classic of all classics when it comes to living on the islands is Gilligan's Island. <laughs> Just as I named the, the three uh, movies, uh, Robinson Crusoe, Swiss Family Robinson, Castaway, it's interesting. If you have children and you can get a hold of a copy of an early edition copy of Robinson Crusoe, it'd be one of the most helpful books for your children because it, the original book is a story of God's divine providence and God's provision and protection in the midst of a very difficult situation. It has a tremendous Christian testimony. Even Swiss Family Robinson has some Christian testimony. Castaway, by the time it came along, has no Christian value whatsoever. And I think that's significant to our society. The bottom line is, is all of these things present what would life be if we didn't have everybody around us? But the truth is, we have to have people. We cannot live, we, we, we may be forced to live in that kind of situation, but, we, but that's, not, that's not where we want, want to live. The truth is, we need each other. Economically, we need each other. We need each other to compete with each other, okay, to find out how, how well we do. We need each other for families. We need each other for society. We need each other for procreation, for celebrating. There's so many things. We have to have each other. God made us to where we need people. People uh, must be around. And yet, because of people, we have war, we have disease, we have prisons, we have crime, we have poverty, we have slavery, and every mess that you can imagine are because of people. And I'm going to suggest to you as we begin today uh, in, our, in our message this morning that we need to understand that, that when, when God created this society where we need people, people can be our, our greatest blessing and our greatest curse. Well, James Taylor's saying now, ain't it good to know that you've got a friend? When people can be so cold, they'll hurt you and, yes, desert you. They'll take your soul if you let them. Oh, now, but don't you let them. And he vowed his friendship, and shortly afterwards he got divorced. As we look at our text this morning, we see three people, Phygelus, Hermogenes, and Anesiphorus. And we often want to think of ourselves as Anesiphorus. Unfortunately, we probably have spent more time as Phygelus and Hermogenes than we have as Anesiphorus. But I hope this morning, and what we're striving to deal with this morning is the hope, hopefully as believers, we may have been Phygelus and Hermogenes, but we're on our way to being Anesiphorus. 
The Apostle Paul, in his life and ministry, experienced betrayal, but he also experienced loyalty. And I'm going to suggest that throughout Scripture, we find that, that situation. People need people. People are hurt by people. People find comfort in people. And it's a dichotomy that's hard for us to put our minds around. But for just a few minutes this morning, before we get to actually the, the, the heart of our message, I want to spend some time looking into Old Testament situations with how people dealt with betrayal and blessing and, and, uh, and, and hopefully give you some, some things to think about. Genesis chapter 37, verse 28 God's word says, the Midianites traders passed by and they drew up Joseph and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Joseph stands to us as one of the greatest figures of betrayal, of being betrayed, but being able to forgive. Joseph didn't do anything wrong except for his righteousness exposed the unrighteousness of his brothers. And they sold him into slavery, and he became a slave. There, doing the best that he could, he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and imprisoned. And he, his prison sentence was not with definite parameters. His prison sentence was, you're going down there till we decide to let you go. And even after all that, uh, when, when the baker and the butler had their dreams and, and he said, remember me, they forgot him. Twenty years. Stop and think about that. Twenty years from the time that Joseph was sold into slavery till finally they, his brothers came back down unbeknownst. They faced their brother. I get a kick out of reading the story of Joseph being reunited with his brothers. On the one hand, it's one of the greatest stories of forgiveness that we'll ever see in our lives. But he got a little pound of flesh. Am I right? He jerked them around, okay? Uh, he had some fun with them. But one of the greatest verses on all the word of God, as for you, you meant evil, Genesis 50, 20. You meant evil, against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be alive as they are today. Interesting that many people, people had done so many unspeakable atrocities against Joseph, and yet he saw it as the greatest mission of his life to be able to say, I've saved many people of lives. And by the way, the, the interesting... Joseph showed compassion, a type of Christ. But because of that, his brothers found grace. What a story. Jeremiah, ministering to those who don't want to hear. Jeremiah 3.49, he says, My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones upon me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. 
I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. Jeremiah, to me, is one of the most difficult people for me to, to study. Because, because when God came to Jeremiah, he says, I want you to go and preach to the people. And I want you to tell them, and here's the message I want you to give them. And God goes into all this, this is what I want you to do, this is what I want you to say, and, and all this, this whole big charge. This, and then he says, and I, oh, by the way, nobody's going to listen to you. And I'm going to tell you right now, that's one of the hardest things in the word of God for me to get my mind around. It's one thing for us to go through difficulties and trials and so on and so forth. And, but, but at the end, we're triumphant, okay? We, we can look at something we, we can accomplish. In my office at, uh, the, at Fort Grant, I have, I have a bulletin board with pictures of many of the inmates that I have worked with over the years. And, and uh, most every one of those inmates is, is a story of God's grace and God's, God's provision. And it's, uh, I, I have that uh, where I look at it from time to time when, when sometimes I feel like I'm accomplishing nothing to realize, okay, there's, there's some trophies of grace. There's what God has done. And, 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 that's, and that keeps me going. It's helpful. And, and, and I will not bat an eyelash in telling you that that is very important to me. I want to be able to look and see something tangible that says that you've accomplished something. God told Jeremiah from the beginning, you're never going to accomplish anything. All you're going to do is be obedient and warn the people of what's coming and they're going to go headstrong right into what they're doing. And Jeremiah did it, and God blessed him. Not any way he could see, but he stands to us. Uh, his writing is, is, is some of the great things in, in the word of God. Ministering to people who don't want to hear. And then David betrayed a type of Christ. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings? Oh, my God, I cry by day that you do not answer and by night. I find no rest. We don't know, I don't know, maybe somebody, a greater scholar than I would know, what the circumstances were behind this situation. But here's David in a place where he felt absolutely alone, even to the point of being forsaken by God. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings? David, of course, throughout his lifetime, his whole life was centered in conflict and, and betrayal and so on and so forth. And yet I'm going to suggest to you that there was never a time when he was more Christ-like than in Psalm 22 because the greater David in Mark chapter 15, verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Labas, Samachthani, 
which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did David learn in the midst of all of his, uh, all of his difficulties? He learned something that, 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 uh, that, that, that God used. Okay. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Peter, useful despite failure. Mark chapter 14, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out in the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will fall away before you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If you must die, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Well, we all know what happened, don't we? Didn't take long that Peter forgot all about that and he denied the Lord. Christ was crucified, he rose again. John 21, verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him said the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. We all know that this is a play on words. Jesus was asking him, do you agape me? And Peter was answering, yes, I phileo you. And, and we, we, we are, we're fully aware of that. And sometimes we chide Peter. We, we really like to chide Peter because he denied Christ three times. And we look at this this situation, and we say, well, boy, Peter, you know, I, he, you know and, and we like to give him a hard time. But I'm going to suggest to you that there's something here that, that uh, is very important to us. Jesus said, do you agape me? And Peter understood full of well what he, what he was saying. But Peter also knew full well what had happened the last time he got that question given to him. You're, gonna, you're, going to, you're going to die me. Oh, no, not me. Did Peter intend to deny the Lord Jesus? Absolutely not. But he did. And now, humbled, repentant, yet facing do you love me? Peter recognized his own frailty and his own weakness and his own sinfulness. And he couldn't, he couldn't bring himself to say, I agape you. And I'm going to suggest to you because Peter saw in his heart his inadequacy, his total incapability of being able to love God on his own at that level. But what was Jesus doing? He was getting ready to tell Peter what he was going to do in his life down the road. 
Oh, what a, what a truth that is. Amen. All of a sudden, Peter's failures didn't make that much difference because God was going to do something. John Mark, Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Pergia and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. John left them. I'd like to know a lot more of the circumstances of why he left. Did he have a health problem? Did he get a letter from home saying that somebody in his family was sick? Did he just weary of the ardor of, of what was taking place? Did he just all of a sudden just, just couldn't handle the pressure? And so we don't know. But he left, and we, we do know that later on there was a great division between Paul and his co-workers because one wanted to take John Mark, and Paul says, there's no way in this world that I'm going to take that guy. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And he wasn't about to do anything. And so Barnabas took John Mark and Paul took Silas. But at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul's about to be executed. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Aren't we thankful today that God takes our, our biggest failures and, 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 and situations where we think that there's absolutely no help and God does something great. And then I want to look at Elijah with the widow Zarephath. First Kings, um, I think it's 17 verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and says, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself my son, that we may eat and die. You think back to what was going on here. Elijah violently battling for, for, the, for, the, for the Lord, and the whole world had turned against him. I mean, the whole world was against him. And, 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 and as far as he's concerned, there's nobody around that's on his side. And God comes to him, and says, I want you to go and to, to this, this widow. And, I, and I'm sure that Elijah's first thought was, how is she going to betray me? Everybody else has betrayed me. How is she going to do that? And then he sees her plight and realizes, well, okay, she may not betray me, but what, she, but what can she do to be of, of help to me? What, what can she do for me? And all of a sudden, two things happened. She, it was found out that she was loyal, and God did something special. Elijah said to her, don't fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, 
and the jug of oil should not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah uh, said, and she, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. Oh, what a, what a wonderful provision. God using the most unlikely of people. And, of course, we all know the story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. John eleven five. now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Here were people that God used. I, I, I want to submit to you, to, in all these situations, we have seen three things. We have seen inadequate people, often betrayed, but God making adequate what man could not make, even in the midst of betrayal. And God using people. In every case, God used people to accomplish special things. And with that in mind, we come back to our, uh, our, our, our text. On that, uh, speaking of Vanessa, for he often refreshed me, he was not afraid of my shame. My chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Onesimus was a man of hospitality. I want to speak for just a few minutes this morning as we're dealing with the issue of people and betrayal and blessing. I want to talk about the issue of hospitality. You know, one of the prerequisites for a for a pastor is to be given to hospitality. We live in a day when hospitality is being lost. There was a time in our country when people would go out to the highway, to the roads, late in the afternoon to see if anybody was coming down the roads because if they, if, if they could find somebody, they would go and get them and bring them to their house. Come on to our house. Spend the night at our house. Eat with us. Share with us your stories. Tell us what's going on in the world. And, and homes were not just open if somebody came and asked. People went out and grabbed people to come in and, and to share their home with them. When was the last time you saw that? Um, my mother was the most given to hospitality person I've ever seen in my life. I can tell you many stories. I'm going to tell you one this morning uh, that, that uh, was the most amazing thing to me and to the people that, that were involved. I had been in college for two years, and I had a buddy uh, roommate whose best friend was Bobby Self. Uh, you know him. Perhaps some of you know who he is. He was, he was the head of uh, ARPCA for, for a few years ago. And uh, Bobby and... and uh, um, and Denny were best friends. Denny was my roommate, and, and Denny had always told me about two fishing holes, uh, one on the, uh, on the Upper Verde, uh, not too far from Payson. I won't tell you that fiasco. Uh, but the other one was this, this uh, on the Verde River below Camp Verde, okay, greatest fishing hole uh, that he'd ever, and so, so he called me up one day, and, and, he, and he and Bobby and, and, and another guy, and I, we all went fishing, and we got in his, his uh, Ford Falcon. How many of you know what one of those is, okay? 
But we got in his Falcon and we, and we, we got on the interstate and we got off the interstate at Camp Verde. We got onto a state road and then we got off the state road onto a county road and then we got onto a dirt road and then we got onto a trail and then we came to a gopher hole and that's where it ended. And there was no water in sight. And we got out of the car and, and I said, where are we going to go fishing? Oh, it's down there. And we walked about 100 yards and we came to a cliff. Straight off. Okay. And I look around and I said, uh, how are we getting from here to there? And, oh, there's a ladder here. Some 49er on his way to California, you know, during the gold rush, had tied this old ladder to the, to the to, and, and, and I looked at that and uh, <laughs> I said, you go first. I'm not going on that thing. And uh, Bobby is a big man. Uh, Denny is even bigger. Uh, when they got through, then I got on the ladder and, and got down. And then it was walk across shale about this kind of an angle with cactus all over the place, hoping you don't slide into the cactus. Finally got down to the bottom, and we walked about another half a mile to the, the fishing hole, Okay. And we fished all day, and the four of us caught five fish. <laughs> all we had brought along to eat was Hershey bars. You know what happens to Hershey bars when you put them in your pocket in the middle of a summer day? By the time we got out of there, um, by the time we got to the car, it, it, was, it was dark. It, it just had turned dark. We had not eaten since breakfast. We're all grousing and, and about to starve, and, and, and I said, well, if you'll, if you'll stop at Camp Verde, if we find a, a payphone, I'll call my mom. We lived in Sedona at the time. I'll call my mom, and, and she'll fix us up. Come on. That isn't going to happen. I, I said, yeah, she will. No, there's no. I, I, I said, honest, she'll fix us something to eat. Now, I had no idea what she was going to fix uh, but, but I called. I said, Mom, we're starving. We haven't had anything to eat since breakfast. Can you fix us something to eat? We arrived about 45 minutes later at our home to a fried chicken, mashed potatoes, all the fixing dinner. And Bobby and Denny looked at that in disbelief. They couldn't believe hospitality. We are losing hospitality because of technology. Air conditioning has, has done a lot to, to do away with, with hospitality. Just the fear of our society has done a lot to do away with, with hospitality. We're scared to leave the doors open. Am I right? We go to bed at night. We make sure everything's locked. Everything's barred. Where the, all the window shades are down and, and so on and so forth. Even work anymore is much of it is being done at home. And I'm not, I'm not decrying that. It's, it, it, it's, it's, it's convenient. It's... it's uh, uh, Saves money and, and so on and so forth. But there's two sides to things. We, we're, we're losing the area of hospitality. But even on our best day in the area of hospitality, folks, we need to go back when Paul wrote about hospitality, what he was writing about. Remember the church at Jerusalem? When they, people first started getting saved, what, what did they do? They sold everything and they lived communally. Am I right? Now, they did so believing that Christ was going to come back with it just a week or two and, and uh, 
and, and, and you know, we're going to have more. We'll leave a large endowment for all the people who are left behind. Well, what happened? Pretty soon that began to run out, and then persecution started, and all of a sudden people had to flee from Jerusalem. They didn't have anything. They didn't have any money. They didn't have any place to go. All they were doing was fleeing for their lives. And what does history tell us happened? Many of them began to go to Antioch, okay? And they were all able to go into the government-funded refugee camp where they were fed, clothed, sheltered, and taken care of, right? Not hardly. They just had to find Christians in Antioch who would open their doors to these people who by now don't smell very good because they've been traveling for several days. They don't have anything. They're starving to death. Come on in. Our fellowship in Christ is going to make our fellowship work. Did you ever stop and think about how rough those days were? May I suggest to you that those days may be coming again. We live in perilous times. We live in times when there are those who would love to do that to Christianity again. May I suggest to you if those times come, we're going to learn a whole lot more about how to get along with God's people. We need to keep in mind, in spite of everything that goes on, that our job is still to preach the gospel. You see, we, ha- we, we, we dealt with, with uh, Acts 1-8, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and that's still our mandate. We still have the mandate to preach the gospel. Why? Because God uses the foolishness of preaching. Now, I recognize the fact there's a lot of foolish preaching going on in our world today, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the foolishness of preaching. That which looks absolutely ridiculous, but God uses to his glory. We go, and who do we preach to? We preach to people. Are they people who necessarily are excited to hear what we have to say? Probably not. Are they people who need to hear what we say? Yes, they are. We're commanded to preach the gospel to every creature. And then as we, as we move forward and look at the issue of people in the day in which we live, we see that people are the primary thing that God uses to our sanctification. God uses people to sanctify us. <laughs> the other day, I have a daughter whose who's, um, God has put her in a very unusual situation. She... she um, has to take care of her in-laws. Her father-in-law just passed away. Her mother-in-law has uh, dementia very badly, uh, and there's some things that we won't even get into. My wife's brother is is uh, has stage four cancer, and uh, and uh, it has fallen this same daughter's responsibility, although he's not living with them, to to take care of him, and so on and so forth. And something came up the other day, and and and. Uh, somebody, you know, suggesting that she do something else, and she says, I don't need that much sanctification. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I appreciated the fact that my daughter 
realized that God uses people in sanctification. Sanctification, that work of the Holy Spirit in which the, God deals with us and conforms us into his image from the day that we come to be his child to the day that we go to be with him. While we are being sanctified with, by people, we have to be careful to avoid bitterness. My wife and I had a conversation on the way here this morning involving a situation that we faced uh, years ago in which it was very difficult for us not to become bitter. And I will tell you right now that she, had a, she, she did better with it than I did. But we have to be careful to avoid bitterness. We have to, avoid, we have to understand in our, in our sanctification process when it's time to answer a fool in his folly and when it's time to not answer a fool in his folly. And sometimes that's not a black and white issue. It's a wisdom issue. But we have to understand that on our best day, we are nothing more than wicked sinners saved by the grace of God. We are ministering to people. Some are saved and some are not. We have experienced the grace of God. And we preach the grace of God to a lost and dying world. If we are to follow the patterns of the grace of God, it will be as people saved by grace, to people needing to be saved by grace, or by people experiencing his grace, experiencing his grace. We will be vigilous and homogenes at times, but we will also be onesophorists at times. And by God's grace, we need to understand that we're in a world full of people and as long as we're in a wicked, sinful, lost world, we're going to have, we're going to have all kinds of problems with people, but we're going to have all kinds of blessings. You want to, you want to know one of the reasons why I love the church? Now, we have our problems in, 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 our, in the family, am I right? But oh, isn't it, isn't it precious to walk in the church and not and, and, and those a lot of the difficulties we've been dealing with all week don't have to deal with those here. Amen. We can come together with God's people. Blessings and curses, difficulties and trials, triumphs. People. We serve people. Let's bow our heads in prayer.